Brace yourself, ladies and gentlemen. If the season ended today, the Ravens would be the number six seed and heading to New England to face the New England Patriots in the playoffs. Hi, I'm Tony Lombardi, and welcome in to the Russell Street Report. The Ravens took care of business with Lamar Jackson behind center yesterday, and they beat the Cincinnati Bengals 24-21 to advance to 5-5 five five on the season. They now look ahead to the Oakland Raiders at M&T Bank Stadium, where they are currently listed as 10.5-point favorites to advance to 6-5. and five. Now, Lamar Jackson was obviously the story yesterday. 27 carries, 24 competitive snaps, three of which were kneel downs at the end of the game and when they were in victory formation, but 117 yards rushing. To put that in perspective, Lamar in one game rushed for more yards than Joe Flacco did in 2016 and 17 combined, where he rushed for 112 yards. Now, some interesting facts. It has been 15 years since an opening scoring drive of 10-plus plays did not include a single pass. Think about that. Ravens had 75 offensive plays to the Bengals, 54, and the time of possession was clearly lopsided with a 38-minute, 9 seconds to 21-51 for the Bengals. An amazing stat. First time in NFL history, a rookie quarterback and running back ran for over 100 yards. Let that marinate. The first time a rookie quarterback and running back combined or each ran for over 100 yards. Pretty special game for both Lamar Jackson and Gus Edwards. And give the Ravens cre uh, coaching staff credit for putting Gus Edwards in the game, a north and south runner, versus a guy like Alex Collins who does a lot of lateral movements. So that obviously was part of the game plan to run north and south through the RPO offense. Now, the Ravens had 15 rushing first downs, which were the second most in team history. And they had 265 yards rushing total. Now, not since December 4th, 2011, have the Ravens reached such heights with their rushing totals when they ran for 290 yards on the heels of some impressive play from Ray Rice and then former Raven Ricky Williams. What will happen with Lamar Jackson going forward? We'll talk about that during the program. Why is RG3 even on the team? If he didn't start against the Cincinnati Bengals, why is he on the team? We'll talk about that with Jeff Zarebeck from The Athletic who will be joining us later in the program. What was Willie Sneed's beef on the sideline with Marty Morningway? He was in the face of the offensive coordinator. Had to be separated from the offensive coordinator by receivers coach Bobby Ingram. We'll talk about that later in the program as well. And for this and more, we'll visit with Jeff Zarebeck, again, formerly of The Sun, now with The Athletic. We'll talk about why Lamar was so effective. What schematically did the Ravens do against the Bengals? Will the future, will future opponents adjust to the Ravens? And how can the Ravens counter? For this and more, we'll be joined later in the program also by Michael Crawford from the Russell Street Report. Michael does game changers for Russell Street Report. If you haven't checked that out, folks, you should because it's a great analysis. He uses video highlights to prove his point as to what plays made the biggest difference or were game changers during the Ravens game, in this case against the Cincinnati Bengals. So we'll take a quick time out. When we get back, we'll be joined by Jeff Zarebeck from The Athletic. Don't go away. Like 33rd Street was to Colt fans, Russell Street will become legendary for future generations of Raven fans. Not only is Russell Street the team's address on Sunday, it's now home to the website voted Baltimore's best five years in a row. You've known them as Ravens247.com for years, and now you'll love them as RussellStreetReport.com for many more. There's nothing else like it for Baltimore football fans. Trust me, RussellStreetReport.com, Baltimore's home for football 24-7. And welcome back to the Russell Street Report. I'm Tony Lombardi. Joining us now is Jeff Zarebeck from The Athletic. Jeff, exciting win yesterday for the Ravens. Yeah, I think we're all uh, wondering how it was going to go down uh, with Lamar Jackson playing. Kind of felt like an end of an era a little bit, kind of some excitement. Um, but I think the end result, uh, you know, regardless of how they went about it, the Ravens needed to win that game to stay in the playoff hunt and, and to continue to make every Sunday matter. You know what I mean? If they had lost Sunday, obviously, you know, there's plenty to look for for the future, especially at the quarterback position. But with the games having no ramifications, really, for the playoff picture, it gets kind of lame. So uh, the Ravens uh, extended their season, for lack of better uh, word, with that win yesterday. And it's excitement's important, Jeff, because 
if you looked around that stadium yesterday, there was about 15,000 empty seats. Yeah, you know, I was I was wondering about that, Tony, because, you know, in the press box, we're a little insulated. We, you know, it's tough to get a feel for the crowd. We don't see the concourses. We don't see different things um, that, you know, maybe some people that are actually definitely some people the stadium see. Um, I'd gotten some emails from different ticket companies who were saying ticket prices went up when it came out when it came out that Lamar Jackson was likely going to start. Uh, there was empty seats there. There's no question. It didn't. I didn't get the excitement feeling that a lot of people were talking about. But I'll also fully admit uh, I wasn't. I'm not very qualified to gauge that because I'm in the press box. But yeah, the the empty seats in the upper deck were pretty noticeable. Staying with the topic of excitement, talk a little bit about the excitement from the team and their response to Lamar Jackson's victory yesterday. Yeah, you know what, I, I think Lamar kind of gave everybody a little bit of a shot in the arm. Uh, you know, he, he just has a skill set that that so few players or so few quarterbacks in the NFL have. Uh, there's a, there's a, I don't know what he's going to do next kind of quality about him, and that could be good or bad. Um, and I've, I've always leaned towards being much closer to a, a Joe Flacco apologist uh, who points out some of the constraints and some of the challenges he's had. Uh, but let's be honest. I mean, they've been a pretty vanilla team over the years. And, uh, the, you know, you pretty much, more often than not, you pretty much know with what you're getting with the offense in Flacco every Sunday. Um, I, I think, you know, coming off the bye at four and five, I, I think the team really needed kind of a jolt of excitement. And, and having that unknown and having that player with a kind of a little more of an electric skill set under center and kind of having more responsibility for other players to do different things that they probably aren't used to doing that much, I think that all added to it. We're here with Jeff Zareback from The Athletic. Now, Jeff, looking at John Harbaugh, some of the video footage from the locker room after the game yesterday, John looked a little excited as well, and he had that whole little routine going with good. Talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you know, I asked Harbaugh a question after the game about how this week felt. Like, did this feel like a really long and stressful week? And I full well knew how he was going to answer it. You know, John is just never going to – put more emphasis on one win. It's always going to be business as usual. Uh, but his uh, kind of actions after the game told a different story. You know, when I was watching the sideline, when they took the knee and the victory formation, Harbaugh was going nuts. He was throwing air punches at Joe Flacco, and he was just seeking out people to hug. He pretty much leaped into Tony Jefferson's arms and all but skipped onto the field. Regardless of what John Harbaugh says, this has got to be a test for him. Uh, you know, this is scrutiny he's never been under. Um, I think John sees the big picture, but that doesn't mean, you, you know, what's going to happen over these next six, seven weeks doesn't mean an awful lot to him. And he doesn't feel like he still has a point to prove through all this. So uh, I think the the motion I I kind of detected more than anything was relief. Uh, I think that was, it's been a real uh, long trying stretch without a win. You've had this rumors about the coaching change. You've had rumors about coordinator change. You've had quarterback rumors. I think everybody in that building has been tested, but I think uh, Harbaugh uh, first and foremost. And I think we kind of saw that uh, him release some of that emotion yesterday. There was a lot of emotion yesterday. And when you look back at the, or you look at this league right now, particularly the AFC, Jeff, anything's up for grabs. And if the season were to end today, the Ravens would be heading to New England as the sixth seed in the playoffs. Yeah, that's why I didn't quite understand this, you know, the, some of the fan perception that, look, we need to change now. We need to do something now. Uh, when, look, I think they everybody ought to be skeptical that this team's going to be able to go into Atlanta, who is, let's face it, isn't that good. I mean, uh, they're completely mediocre. Uh, then go into L.A. and beat the Chargers and Kansas City. I, I get it. It doesn't look good for them to win one or two of those games. And, and can they hold serve and beat teams like the Browns and Buccaneers at home? I sure as heck hope they can beat the Raiders. Uh, but, um, you know, so you don't know what's going to happen. But when you're mathematically right in there, I mean, it's not a long shot to say they can make the playoffs right now. It's realistic. I mean, none of those teams, the AFC, are all that impressive going for that final spot. I think you have to play to win still. And this whole notion we have to play Jackson to know what we have, 
you may have three or four games at the end of the season when you're eliminated where you can figure out what you have. If you would have headed into this offseason and said, we have four or five games of tape on Lamar Jackson and that'll help us make our decision, I think that's plenty. I think that's well more than you would have expected to have. So, yeah, they're right in the thick of it, Tony. It hasn't looked good at times, uh, but the standings alone and then you look at the rest of the playoff picture would say, I think most people would say they're one of the favorites for that spot. They're, we don't know what we're going to get from them every week, but uh, I take my chances against some of those other teams they're competing against. It is a week-to-week -week league, but let's say, let's stay with this theme for a second, Jeff. Let's assume that the Ravens do beat the Raiders. They're currently listed as 10.5-point favorites at home. So if they beat the Raiders, take care of business, now they're 6-5. and five. Joe Flacco's hip is on the mend, and he's ready to go against Atlanta in Atlanta. What do the Ravens do? Wow, that's a great question, Tony. I knew you were going to ask it because that's the question <laughs> everyone's asking. And I'm glad I don't have to make the decision. Um, you know, I've got both sides on this. And uh, ultimately, I think they're going to be have to be a whole lot more explosive in the passing game to beat decent teams on the road. Um, and, you know, maybe they can be at that with Lamar Jackson under center. I don't know. I don't I think when you look at the game plan yesterday, it was the game plan they needed to do to win. And I'm fine with that. But now there's two things that are going to happen. One, now there's a lot of tape out on Lamar, what he likes to do. Teams are going to know what to take away. I mean, every quote I saw from the Bengals uh, locker room yesterday talked about he was kind of hard to prepare for because they weren't really sure what the Ravens were going to do. Well, now people are going to get a grip on what they are going to do. Can they still be successful when people know that's coming a little more, especially against better teams? Uh, can they score enough with that mode uh, to keep up with teams like the Falcons and the Chiefs and the Chargers on the road? I'm highly skeptical. Uh, that's why I still think Joe Flacco probably gives them the best chance uh, to make a little bit of a playoff run here. Um, you know, I think RG3 could beat the Raiders. I, they shouldn't have any problem beating them, although I do know you never know with this team. And the Raiders did come off a win. But uh, the question is that Atlanta game. And if you're asking me right now, I'd say Flacco probably gives them a better chance to get some of the plays uh, done down the field that they're going to need to beat those teams. However, it all depends on what he's doing. If he hasn't practiced for two and a half, three weeks, no, I don't think he does give you that chance. But if he comes back and uh, has a good week of practice under his belt and is, it has some mobility, I mean, he's never going to have a ton, but some mobility, then I think I might consider giving him the nod. But if we see an expanded game plan and Lamar Jackson making some plays down the field next Sunday – Ah, I mean, all bets are off then. I, I might have to stay with the hot hand, but I'd have to see a little more from Lamar Jackson to say that. Speaking with Jeff Zareback from The Athletic, you mentioned RG3, Jeff. Were you surprised that he didn't get the nod to start that game? Because in my opinion, he's a guy that that's the exact reason why he was on the roster all those weeks is to be able to step in for Joe for a week or two if he went down with an injury. Yeah, you know what? I think, Tony, if, if it was week three or four, we probably would have seen Robert Griffin just because they Good just point. didn't think Lamar Jackson was ready. Um, and I think when you combine the fact that, you know, Lamar's had 10 weeks now to get up to speed. And, and I think, you know, the Bengals always seem to step ahead of the Ravens whenever they play, specifically defense to their offense, to the Ravens' offense. And uh, I think they thought a different element here uh, of Lamar Jackson uh, would really come into play well and perhaps uh, get the Bengals off on their heels a little bit. And when you throw in the fact that the Bengals didn't have, you know, two or three of their better, uh, you know, inside guys in there, I thought they felt like Lamar Jackson, this was a good fit for his debut. Uh, but I think we're seeing now that, you know, the ability to mentor Lamar Jackson, to be around, to help out, do all that stuff was definitely a primary reason Robert Griffin is on this team, uh, with all due respect. But uh, I, I think at this point in the season, they were just ready to see Lamar. It's time to see what his kid can do. We badly need a shot in the arm, and let's see if the rookie, exciting rookie, can give it to us. You mentioned the passing game, Jeff, and having the need to be able to strike downfield a little bit more than Lamar showed yesterday against some of the better offenses. Talk a little bit about the edginess from Willie Sneed and Michael Crabtree yesterday, because in a winning effort, 
maybe you can kind of like, you know, kick those things to the side. But if it's a losing effort and those guys aren't getting the ball, it might become a little bit more noise. Yeah, look, do you think with Michael Crabtree playing his old team or his team that cut him Sunday, he's going to be happy getting one catch for seven yards? No, uh, this isn't an attack on Crabtree. I, I mean, you know, a lot of these re- these receivers want the ball. I mean, that's why you signed them. They don't want to play in an offense that is all running and they're downfield blocking the whole game. And, you know, Sneed's case, Sneed got eight targets yesterday. That's a lot, uh, you know. And so I don't think he can complain too much. I think his his frustration stemmed from how conservative they got the back-to-back plays when they were at the – it was like second 11 at the 11 – you know, they had had the fumble on the first snap, I think, and uh, they had two chances to try to score a touchdown, and they went quarterback sneak, quarterback sneak, and settled for the field goal. I think Snead thought that's not that's not the aggressiveness they're going to need, and I probably agree with them um, because, as we've seen, the Ravens' defense late in games is kind of let down, and you kind of want to play for a touchdown there, uh, but... You know, I think uh, I think these guys had to know this was coming. They've practiced with Lamar Jackson all year. Uh, they they know his strengths, they know his weaknesses, and they probably know he wasn't ready to come out and throw the ball 25, 30 times a game yet. Um, but you know, just because they're not ready for, or just because they understand, doesn't mean it's easier to accept when you're downfield blocking on half the plays. So yeah, that's going to be an issue. Uh, you know, those two guys already yelled at Har- or yelled at Harbaugh yesterday. I've Sneed got in the face of Morningweg and need to be separated by Bobby Ingram from getting after him. Uh, you know, that's going to continue to be an issue. You, you can't think you're going to run the ball 54, 55 times. And these receivers, you paid money to make plays downfield. They're just going to be satisfied with it. And, and it goes, it's not just a, you know, it's not just a, give you the ball kind of thing. I think everybody in that locker room knows you're going to have to be a little more explosive offensively uh, to be able to get to where they want to get to. Yeah, and as a fan of the team, I got to like that feistiness from Snead and Crabtree, so I hope they keep it up. Now, one of the things that the Ravens did yesterday, Jeff, was they made the switch really to give Gus Edwards the workload at tailback, and when you look at it retrospectively, given Lamar's style and that RPO type of offense – that north and south approach that Gus Edwards takes, that was a good move by the coaching staff. Yeah, well said, Tony. You know, and it shows how much I know. Uh, a couple people had asked me what, what they're, what's the play with Kenny Dixon and how can you keep all these running backs – um, and I said, well, you know, you, you got a while to look at Kenneth Dixon, so I don't see anything imminent. But ultimately, you have to think that Gus Edwards will have a hard time staying on the roster. Now I'm not so sure Gus Edwards doesn't start next, uh, uh, you know, on Sunday against the Raiders. Uh, but it was, it was, a, he's a very good, you know, he just, he just goes, man, and he breaks tackles. Very rarely he's get taken down by the first guy. There's not a whole lot, you know, there's not a whole lot there. Uh, in terms of stylistically, it's just get north and south, get up the field, and and uh, not let the first guy bring you down. And uh, it was perfect complement to what Lamar Jackson was doing. And uh, I also give the offensive line credit. I don't know that I heard Gino Atkins' name mentioned more than once or twice, and he's usually a guy that just destroys the Ravens. Uh, but they clearly found something there. They found a guy with fresh legs with a lot to prove and a guy who's pretty physical and, you know, I'm not – this isn't bashing Alex Collins, but uh, he's just not that decisive going up the field. And, uh, you know, his style can work. Uh, that's not to say he can't be. Uh, but with that game plan with Lamar at the quarterback, um, you know, Gus Edwards was a great fit for that. You mentioned Geno Atkins and probably one of the reasons why you didn't hear his name much yesterday because Marshall Yonda had a whale of a game. Yeah. But Yonda's making a lot of noise today probably not by design because there was a, a post on Twitter that pro football talk jumped all over about um, Marshall Yonda spitting on Vontez Burfecht. But when you look at that video and then when you think about the character that Marshall Yonda has always carried himself with, I kind of tend to doubt that he was spitting on Burfecht. Yeah. You know, I saw the headline and I said, wow. Um, that, a, that seems out of character. Marshall Yonda's been one of their 
when they do that sports uh, Art Rooney Sportsmanship Award, Yonda's been a Ravens frequently cited in that. Uh, not this year. I know it's Weddle, but in past years he has. That's never how he's played. Uh, he's You never hear anybody complain league-wide about how Marshall Yonda goes about his business. Um, so that surprised me. Then, of course, I watched the – I read it, and the Pro Football Talk post made it like – it's clear. It's obvious you spit on him. Um, you know, anybody's going to accuse a Ravens reporter of being a homer when we say it's not obvious. But I, le- I looked at that, and I did not think it's as obvious as everyone said. I mean, he kind of even wipes spit from his mouth at one point, kind of swats it to the left. You know, he's kind of standing over top top of him, but he moves his head a little bit. Um, I don't know that there's enough. Actually, I, I, you know, I don't think there's enough there where you could – where you could conclude without a doubt that Marshall Yon is spitting down on uh, Vontaze Perfect. And if he was and it was that obvious and he's standing on top of him, I would have think one of the five or six bangles that were standing on the pile would have gotten after Yonda. Or Vontaze Perfect, who cries wolf after every play, would have at least challenged Yonder or complained to the ref. And you didn't see any of that. So uh, we'll see what the NFL has to say. Uh, I can't, I can't, you know, judge a player's intention. I don't know what's going through Yonder's head. I know Ravens officials are outraged at the suggestion that that was definitely spitting him spitting on him they think it's nonsense uh but uh we'll see what the league has to say it would be tough to give a fine to a player with no previous real issues without knowing without that being 100 percent obvious and i just don't know that that was 100 percent obvious that he was spitting right on him and at him I agree, and I think at the end of the day, the real story is going to be how the Ravens treat pro football talk going forward. Shifting gears here, Jeff, I'm looking at the play-by-play of the game yesterday, and I'm dialing it to the fourth and one. The Ravens are up 24-21 to with 3.07 left to go in the game, and they decide that they're going to go for it. What was going through your mind at that moment? Well, one, you know, they called the timeout. Cook was on the field. And they're on their 49-yard line, too. Yeah, they called the timeout, and Sam Cook was on the field. Um, so, and then they pulled him off pretty quickly, and Lamar went back out there. And I just said they're probably just gonna, you know, uh, try to draw the Bengals offside, let the play clock go down to zero if they don't take the five yards, and you know. Sam Cook's perfectly capable of pinning somebody in from his own 45 as he is from the 50 the or wherever it was. So uh, I was surprised by that, but I think it kind of fit into Harbaugh, you know,'s game plan that they were going to be aggressive and uh, they were going to go out to win the game. And look, Tony, I, I, to say that. I'm sure people on the sideline weren't thinking we have to close this game on offense because we've had such a hard time. Specifically, it's the Bengals doing it defensively. I think that would be probably false. I think everybody's seen that movie before, and they didn't want to be in a scenario where the defense was on the field having to stop the Bengals uh, from getting points to either send the game in overtime for the win. Uh, that didn't bother me at all. I like the aggression, in fact. And, uh, you know, they... I don't know. I'm not a, a rules aficionado. I guess they ruled uh, uh, Ronnie Stanley was a little far off the line of scrimmage than he should have been. But, hey, he got the two, three yards. They had picked it up, and then they would have been able to take a knee, and that game's probably over right there. So I, I don't fault them for going for it and being aggressive. Um, I, I think you're going to have to see a lot of that uh, the rest of the way. Now, the Ravens' defense, you mentioned them, and one of their problems has been what I oftentimes refer to them as the soft white underbelly, that being the middle of the defense. In the middle of the defense, that responsibility rests largely on the shoulders of C.J. Mosley, of Eric Weddle, and of Tony Jefferson. Now, of those three, Tony Jefferson's contract suggested he'll be a Raven in 2019. But the other two guys, I'm not so sure of. Weddle represents a $6.5 million cap savings if he's let go, and CJ is not under contract for 2019. What do you think the future is for the Ravens and those two players? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even, uh, you know, if there's a new coaching staff in place and all that, um, and I think that's, I think we all understand that's probably where this is headed. Um, I don't expect Weddle to be back next year, and I don't even know if they'll cut him or he's going to retire. I mean, you know, when I talked with Eric Weddle this offseason, he admitted there was a time 
most of the offseason where he just wasn't doing it. His body wasn't responding. Uh, he just wasn't feeling, you know, feeling like he was up to it again. And he kind of rallied. Um, so I don't know that he just doesn't say, you know what? Rather, you know, I, I know it's my future's probably not here. I'm going to retire. And he has said in the past, this will be my last stop. So uh, I, right now I can see that's where that one's headed, that he won't be back. Um, you know, me and you have had this conversation about Mosley. You know, I was kind of uh, banging the drum that they're crazy if they think they can just let him go and they're going to replace him with Kenny Young. And, you know, so but this year. I just haven't seen a ton of splash plays by Mosley. He's always going to have problems in coverage. Um, I still think he's probably their best defensive player on the field. Uh, and I still think very little these there, – there's – you know, maybe you can count the number of inside linebackers on one hand in the NFL that can cover anybody these days. It's just impossible. These guys get isolated in the matchups, and they just get abused. And uh, people think it's just in Baltimore. I've seen some really good linebackers. I was watching Bobby Wagner uh, this past week, and I think Bobby Wagner and Keekly are both guys that you'd say are better than Mosley. And he was giving up some plays to tight ends and backs and stuff. Um, so I'm a little on the fence about Mosley. Uh, I was pro-signing him. Now I don't think you can go ahead and make him the highest paid middle linebacker in the league. And I think someone's going to be willing to if he gets the free agent market. So I probably need to see the direction they're headed. If if it's a total rebit, uh, rebuild on defense, they let go of Weddle, they don't re-sign Suggs, uh, they cut Jimmy Smith, they cut Carr. At that point, what good does it do to spend all that money on Mosley? However, if they try to still piece things together a little bit, make a couple draft picks there and bring back a couple of the major guys, I would be more open to re-signing Mosley. But that's going to be a real tough call. You mentioned Weddle's last rodeo. You mentioned Suggs just a moment ago. Do you think Suggs comes back in 2019? I think Suggs wants to be back. I think he wants to finish his career with the Ravens. I don't think he wants to go anywhere else. I think he wants to keep moving up that sack list. But you know, Suggs with his, you know, he's got this persona that, you know, this kind of jokester, I'm a kid persona, but he is acutely aware of everything that goes on around him. He's acutely aware of his legacy and he can act all he wants and he doesn't care that much what people are saying or writing or he doesn't no care about the Hall of Fame. I don't believe that for a second. Uh, I think he wants to uh, wants to come back another year and, and keep adding to those totals, and he wants to be part of the Ravens. But again, if you're where does a 37, 38 year old pass rusher who's you know still can make an impact at times, but is not going to be able to consistently do it over 16 games? Where does that guy fit into a rebuilding team? And if you're rebuilding. You're probably doing. You're probably doing it around Lamar Jackson. You know, you're, 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 who's the face? Terrell Suggs, as long as he's going to be there, is going to be considered the leader of this team. So, if you're rebuilding, you probably just need to start over there too. So, uh, I would say it's probably unlikely. But uh, you know, they have a special relationship. Steve Bashotti has a special relationship with Suggs. Uh, Ozzy has the closest relationship of them all. Um, I know he's not going to be back, but I'd imagine he'll still have some impact. So uh, we'll see about that. Uh, but I, I think he wants to be back. But I think he's another one of those guys that's highly questionable to return. They've got Suggs, and you've got some other guys in the mix coming, at, getting after the passer against the Tennessee Titans. They sacked Marcus Mariota. 11 times since then in what Jeff four games they have three sacks what's going on yeah and you know I think we've seen a bunch of I don't think Wink Martindale Wink Martindale's been pretty aggressive I don't think he's all of a sudden stopped trying to get to the quarterback and start playing conservative I mean there's always things you can try to do to be more aggressive but um, I, you know, I don't, I just don't see a whole lot of guys winning their individual matchups. To be honest, I, I like some of the, I mean, I, I looked up several times after watching play downfield and look back and Michael Pierce appeared to be getting some push inside. That's a good sign. They need more than that. Uh, they need more of that. I, I know Brent Urban, uh, had some push on a couple of plays, uh, but you know, I just haven't, you know, Zadarius Smith, you haven't heard a ton from him since that, that performance against the Titans. I don't think they're ever, you know, I was shocked about how 
you know, for lack of a better word, amateurish Mariota looked in that Titans game. I mean, he it got in his head. You know, they got after them early. He didn't know where players were coming, and he just stopped looking downfield and he was holding the ball. So a bunch of those sacks, I think, were attributed to that and Mariota. Um, but I, I didn't see them falling off a cliff like this with their pass rush. They, they just... You know, the guys they have played have gotten rid of the ball. I mean, Andy Dalton, I think, is second in the league and how quickly he gets rid of the ball. And, you know, it's been emphasized since the Titans game. You don't hold the ball against the Ravens. It'll become a sack party. But still, uh, their blitzes haven't gotten home. Uh, they they just need to figure that out. And, uh, you know, get a turnover. I mean, uh, uh, Andy Dalton, I thought, threw five or six balls up for grabs or balls that got tipped and, they just can't seem to make a play to get that turnover. And, uh, you know, with all the criticisms about the defense, I still think it's a solid defense when you consider the rest of the league and no one really plays defense. But, you know, the, the dominant defenses are the ones that are able to turn the turn the ball over and uh, get after the quarterback and make game-changing plays. And those plays just haven't been there in weeks for the Ravens. Jeff, last question for you. In the Ravens have a le- uh, six games left to go. They're five and five. Yeah. Looking into your crystal ball, what do you expect from the Ravens the rest of the way? Oof. Um, you know, I, I look. I just I don't have enough confidence in their ability right now to go on the road and win one or two of those games. And I, I'm also the 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 thought of having to beat Cleveland at home now in a week 17 game after what's happened what happened last year and you know you got a rookie quarterback who's gaining confidence by the week the Browns are talented let's be honest people can dispute that all they want even that game doesn't absolutely look like a gimme um, so I, I still feel like they're going to be uh, in that eight and eight nine and seven range and it may not be good enough uh, but you know they should beat the Raiders. Uh, and that Atlanta does not, you know, I'm not even sure the Ravens are going to be an underdog anymore in that Atlanta game. I mean, Atlanta, they're just, they've proven just to be a mediocre team. They're a different animal in Atlanta, but they're still not a dominating team there. They've been so banged up. So that's a winnable game. Tampa's certainly winnable. Um, I mean, I, 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 there's four wins on their schedule, but they're just tough team to feel confident in because they're so up and down. And now you add in the factor, how do they build with Lamar Jackson and what do they decide to do with the quarterback situation? So, you know, it looks to me like an eight and eight, nine and seven team, and I'm just not sure that's going to be good enough. Uh, you know, we all left the Colts for dead, but uh, right now I'd probably list them as the favorite for that second wild card spot. There he is. Jeff Zerebeck from the athletic Jeff. Thanks for joining us today. My bro, thanks for having me, Tony, and thanks for bearing with me. I've been a little under the weather, so I appreciate it. Feel better. Feel better. All right, we're going to take a quick timeout. When we return, we're going to be joined by Michael Crawford from Russell Street Report. He's going to talk about game changers from yesterday's game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Russell Street Report. I'm Tony Lombardi. Joining us now from Russell Street Report, he does our game changers each and every week, which you've got to check out if you haven't already. They're outstanding. Michael Crawford. Mike, welcome in. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, brother. Hey, your overall assessment, it's the first full game look we've had at Lamar Jackson. Did he meet your expectations? It was pretty much as you thought. Give us your overall assessment of Lamar's uh, first performance as a starter. I was actually really impressed uh, with his performance. Anybody who's followed me on Twitter going back through the draft knew I was a a big Lamar Jackson fan anyway, so I know I've got a little bias there. But uh, trying to set that aside and and, uh, be impartial as much as I can, I think when you you look at it in in context, um, you know, Mr. Practice, right, during the week, uh, first start uh, as a rookie, in what essentially was a playoff elimination game, right? I mean, almost all of their games can sort of be viewed that way from this point forward. Uh, I think he came in and played really well. I don't think he showed any 
obvious negative game management uh, sort of issues. I think he made solid decisions in the run game. Um, overall, pretty solid decisions in the past game. Of course, there was the interception and, and maybe a couple other tip balls uh, that you could take a look at. But overall, I thought he was a pretty solid uh, decision maker there. And and I guess just if I had to summarize it in like two words, I think it was just, you know, poise and, and decision making. I was really impressed with those two things. Mike, you talked about you were a fan of Lamar coming into the league. Do you think he is an NFL quarterback? Because there's a lot of people, myself included, don't think that he has the long-term uh, staying power to be a successful NFL quarterback. I actually think he he can be. Obviously, he's not a finished product, uh, you know, mm-hmm. his rookie season, <laughs> first game. But I actually think he can be. But I think what maybe brings me to that conclusion is, I see that differently maybe than most people. If you're thinking about sort of the prototypical archetype NFL quarterback, what we've seen in the past, no, I I don't think he's that guy. And I I don't necessarily know if you want him to be that guy because of what he brings to the table uh, from an athleticism standpoint. But I think we've seen it a little bit more over the last couple of years. These guys were a little bit more mobile, a little bit more dual threat. Um, you can even take a look at a guy like Patrick Mahomes right now, who obviously doesn't run as much as Lamar, but just in terms of a guy who has some mobility, has the ability to throw the ball, make quick decisions from the pocket, uh, from the pocket. I think you're starting to see more of that work, particularly with coaches more willing to embrace those concepts, right? Before you were trying to kind of square peg round hole, these guys and make them traditional pocket passers when they've been running, you know, air raid offenses since they were in middle school. So, so why wouldn't you play to their strengths? It's natural, I think, to make the comparison of Lamar to guys like Deshaun Watson and Jameis Winston. Kind of parallel those guys, those three guys, if you could see, you know, are, are, is their game similar do you think that that's a good projection for Lamar or is his ceiling a little bit higher than those two guys? I think you can certainly see similarities in, in, in the play style, uh, particularly with Deshaun Watson, obviously, right? The first thing that comes to mind is their ability to make plays with their legs, but also uh, to make plays downfield. We've seen Deshaun Watson do a ton of that, right? Particularly going back to last year before he got hurt, had some really big passing yardage games. And then, um, you know, coming back this year uh, has had had some big games, maybe not quite the sort of, you know, splash games that he had last year, but still some pretty solid games. Um, so I think there's some similarity in the in, in those play styles between um, Deshaun and Lamar. Winston's a little bit different because I think Winston kind of fits the mold of more of that traditional uh, archetype, um, you know, pocket passer, a guy who you wouldn't say, you know, uh, you know, running is a strength of his. Obviously, he is mobile and he can run when he has to, but I think he would. Uh, tell you himself he'd prefer to sit back there and throw the ball so I actually see Lamar maybe as a little bit of a of a blend of those two styles of of a guy who um, obviously is dynamic and and you want to take advantage of that ability with his legs but you know can stand in the pocket go through progressions make good decisions and make throws uh, when he needs to we saw somewhat of a comical play yesterday with Lamar locking in on a receiver just staring his receiver down and then delivers the ball somewhat sidearm and hits Alex Lewis right in the helmet with the football. <laughs> Talk about that. And what can the Ravens do schematically to give him more options so that he can not just stare down one receiver, but maybe within his sight line have another option as well? Yeah, I think we'll see more of that uh, as he gets more playing time. I mean, as it looks right now, maybe he'll get a start against Oakland. Beyond that, we don't know. Uh, right. So how, how much of this they actually get to is, is hard to say. But I think, again, when you put this in context of his first game, I think they did kind of want to simplify things for him, uh, particularly in the past game, um, sort of give him defined reads, right, when he didn't, when, so he didn't have to do as much in terms of progression reading, although he did do that uh, at, at various times during the game. I actually think even though that worked out like kind of comically, like you said, I actually think that's one of his, his strengths is his ability to kind of change his arm angle and fine throwing lanes. Uh, that's kind I of agree. been a knock on, on Flacco a little bit this year, right, with batted balls at the line. Everybody thinks that's that's attributable to height, but it's really not. It's really about vision. Uh, and I think Lamar is actually pretty good at that. But I think what, what you'll see them do uh, is sort of expand the playbook a little bit more for him. I, I think he had a couple of concepts in this game where there would sort of be 
one read, one one play comes to mind um, where, you know, the result wasn't great. Uh, it was kind of that end-around play to John Brown. And people are thinking, well, why would they call that? Obviously, the Bengals, you know, are sitting on runs. But if you really study that play, I think that was a design play-action pass to Michael Crabtree on the other side on a slant. The linebacker dropped, sat in the slant window, and took that away. And so the option that uh, Lamar had on that play was to pitch it to Brown coming around on the reverse. So I think they tried to give him really defined things to make it simple. But I think as he gets more experience and gets more comfortable with you know, live game fire, so to speak, and coverages, you, you open that up a little bit more. I, I have to imagine those plays exist, but, you know, you don't want to overload him at this point. We're speaking with Mike Crawford from Russell Street Report. Mike, the Ravens decide to go for it. It's fourth and one from their own 49. There's three minutes and seven seconds left to go in the game, and they opt to go for it. Just your overall thought at that point in time, I asked the same of Jeff Zarebeck. Were you thinking good move, bad move, or are they out of their minds? <laughs> it's funny. I actually think uh, it was consistent with John Harbaugh's approach uh, to, to, to game management and, and things that he's done throughout his career. He's an aggressive guy and he's willing to kind of roll the dice in those situations. For me, I, I know this is a little bit of a fence sit and I hate to be that guy, but I'm always reluctant to second guess calls in the game um, just because we have the benefit of hindsight right now. It's easy for us to say whether something was good or something was bad. Very true. And then also, there's also the prism of, of which you look at it. You know, are you are you judging it based on results, which is obviously what the NFL is. It's results business. So that's where most people go. But when you're just thinking about decision making, I try to think about it in terms of process. Like given the information in that particular situation, did you make a good decision based on those variables? Not necessarily what the outcome was. So did it work out in the end? Yeah, it did, because the Ravens defense stopped Cincinnati on fourth and three. And, you know, they got the ball back and were able to take a couple nail downs and end the game. If they had gone for I mean, if they had gotten that without the penalty there, uh, and, I, and we'll probably talk about that, they were able to convert on that play without the penalty. Maybe they, they keep the ball and they run the clock out and you never have to put the defense back on the field. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's hard to it's hard for me. I know other people are more comfortable doing it, but it's hard for me to really say right. whether that was a good call or a bad call. So you mentioned the penalty, Mike. Ronnie Stanley called for covering up the receiver. It looked like they used that formation earlier in the game. So what really went down with that play and why was the penalty called? Well, Tony, let me first admit, not a rules expert, but I got a little help uh, from from one of my followers on Twitter. Yoshi. A little help is always good. A, little, a lot of help, actually. He basically explained it for me. Uh, but we went back and, and took a look at things and, and sort of came to an agreement on it. But um, so in, in our opinion, uh, it turned out to be an ineligible uh, man situation. So Ronnie Stanley was lined up on the end of the line of scrimmage, kind of on the offense's left side. He was the last guy over there, and he did not report as an eligible receiver. So okay. by rule, he has to be covered up by an eligible receiver, which could be a wide receiver or a tight end. And there wasn't one on, on his side of the, of the formation. So I think that's why they, they penalized him there. Um, you mentioned that, you know, it seemed like they used that formation earlier in the game and it wasn't a penalty. I'd, I'd actually have to go back and check that. Cause I'd be curious, like if they lined up exactly in that same way before and it was fine, why was it a penalty in that context? The explanation made sense to me, but then shouldn't it have been a penalty you know, in, in, in the other situation, if it was the exact same formation alignment. Yeah, that's just the eyeball test from my perspective. I didn't go back and rewind it and look at it again. But at the same time, maybe, as you said, Stanley reported that time and didn't the time that he was flagged for the penalty. Yeah. Or maybe Ronnie Stanley didn't think they were going to make it and thought they should have punted all along. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he did. Maybe he was, you know, a little bit more conservative uh, as, as, a, as a head coach. And uh, Ronnie right. wanted to, you know, punt it and let the defense play. <laughs> Put it on the defense. Now, there's a guy that's been playing really well. He's making splash plays both in special teams and in the last two games, I believe, against the Steelers and then again yesterday uh, against the Bengals, he made some fantastic catches. I'm talking about Chris Moore. Do you think he's deserving of more playing time and more offensive snaps? It's sure hard to come to any other conclusion. I mean, whenever the guy gets an opportunity this year, it seems like he's making a play. Uh, it reminds me of something that Steve Smith Sr. used to say when he was here about practice, make a play a day, you know, and, and that that seems like uh, Chris Moore's deal whenever he's given an opportunity, which which have been 
you know, limited, I guess, in, in terms of the overall wide receiver distribution. Uh, he seems to make that play. What's interesting is um, I've been looking at snap counts recently for the wide receivers. And in the last five games, he's been hovering right around 44 uh, percent of the snaps, whereas Snead, um, Brown and Crabtree, interestingly, are all pretty bunched together. They're all right around 65%. I think Snead actually is leading the way there with 69% of the snaps. So they're all bunched pretty closely. So the tough thing is, I think with his play, he certainly has earned more opportunities, but then you've got to take snaps away uh, from one of those three other guys. And I don't think coaches think about it this way, obviously, in season during games, but you know, these are free agent guys who you sign, con- you know, you sign the contracts to. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's that context sort of hanging over thing and uh, hanging over right. things in terms of playing time decisions. But if it's a true meritocracy, which I think we hear from Harbaugh all the time, uh, it's hard to hard to to see this guy, uh, Chris Moore, not not getting more opportunities. I like that I like word that. meritocracy. Look at that. It's fancy. huh? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the Ravens defense for a couple of minutes, if we could, Mike. The Ravens really struggle covering the middle of the field, and I don't think that that's unusual in today's NFL with the spread offenses, but it's something that's really, I, I think, as I have you called it many times before, the soft white underbelly of the Ravens' defense, and that falls on the shoulders of C.J. Mosley, Eric Weddle, Tony Jefferson, amongst others. But what do you think the Ravens can do schematically to try to tighten that up in the middle of the field? Because they seem to be getting carved up a lot there. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it is um, something you see pretty pretty frequently in today's NFL. Uh, everybody knows that's kind of the place that you want to attack because that's where the linebackers typically are. And you're going to have better uh, matchups in terms of wide receivers or even tight ends. As we know, there's so many athletic tight ends in the league right now. Uh, you're going to have more favorable matchups from an offensive standpoint versus linebackers in that part of the field. So those guys tend to get picked on. Um you know, I, I won't I won't go full soapbox. Uh, I'm, anybody who follows me on Twitter knows I'm 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 in the tank for CJ, uh, <laughs> so I'll disclose that right now. Uh, but I think some of the things that that they can do and have done at times, you know, it's not it's not always maybe been executed uh, the way that they would have liked. But uh, particularly in man coverage, when you get those sort of uh, pick and rub route situations, sometimes you see them try to switch that. Right, you, um, you know, kind of a, a, a coaching term is banjo for that where you know you think about a rubber band sometimes you'll see guys kind of making that motion with their hands mm-hmm. pre-snap like they're stretching out a rubber band or something so it's basically a bracket coverage but you're adjusting to how the receiver's routes distribute right so if the outside guy goes inside and the inside guy goes outside if I'm the inside defender I'm going to switch and take the guy that comes inside regardless of who my you know sort of assigned man was pre-snap I'm just going to take whoever comes inside and, you know, the same thing with the outside defender. I'm going to I'm going to take whoever comes outside, regardless of sort of who my assigned man was. So, I mean, that sounds easy in theory. Like, yeah, why wouldn't you just do that all the time? You'd never get beat on pick routes. But, you know, offenses know that you're going to do that from time to time. And then it comes back to the matchup again. I mean, NFL is a matchup league. So even if by position I can sort of adjust to that, what if that matchup puts A.J. Green on C.J. Mosley? that's not going to be a good outcome uh, most of the time. So right. why that may seem like an easy thing to do schematically, and it can work at times, uh, I think you have to mix up how often you do it. And then also, you know, do some things to bracket guys. We've seen that this year where they'll drop Suggs or they'll drop Judon back uh, kind of over the, the, the short, shallow part of the middle of the field to try to bracket some stuff uh, when they get crossers and, and slants and stuff in there. So I think they try to do some things at time, but at times, but you know, it's an arms race in the NFL, right? Between offenses and defenses and, and the offenses seem to have the upper hand this year. Meritocracy arms race. You're just full of these cool little cliches, Mike Crawford. <laughs> it's the lawyer in me, man. I can't help it. It's the, you know, you go there and, and you learn all of these big fancy words and uh, I don't practice law anymore. So I don't get a chance to throw them out very much, but here we go. This is, this is my shot. <laughs> Well, we like it. We're talking to Michael Crawford from Russell Street Report. Mike, you mentioned C.J. Mosley. You said you're in the tank with him. And the guy that's playing a lot next to him, Kenny Young, we talked with Jeff Zarebeck earlier in the program, and he mentioned the lack of splash plays that C.J. makes. But Kenny Young, when given the opportunity, he seems to be making splash plays. He did a couple times yesterday on special teams and yesterday making tackles at or near the line of scrimmage. Talk about his development, and do you see him as being a starter, a a productive starter, from 2019 and beyond? 
Yeah, I've been impressed with Kenny Young. Um, I think Jeff nailed it. I mean, he's he's a he's a quick twitch, quick trigger guy who I think based on some of the things that they're asking him to do uh, so far this year, I think, you know, you always have to add that context when you look at a guy making plays is they're not giving him a whole lot of other responsibilities. Right. Sometimes it's a one read, you know, see it and hit it right kind of thing. And obviously he's athletic enough to make those plays. But in the run game, I think he does a really good job keying things and and triggering really quickly. I think he does a good do- a good job defeating blocks. Um, one of the things that he does, particularly in the run game, and I'll talk about the pass game in a minute, that um, I like that I don't think I've seen a lot from Ravens linebackers in you know in recent times. You might have to go back to Ray is, uh, and I don't know if this is a scheme thing. I've always wondered if I could ask Pease or Martindale, but they they tend to read a lot in the run game. You don't see them like really press gaps and shoot gaps a whole lot. They do it at times, but they tend to kind of sit back and read in the run game. But they seem to have given Kenny Young the green light. Like if he sees something, go get it, right? And we'll cover you up. You know, we'll make you right uh, on the back end if, if you're not right. <laughs> so I like that, you know, when you've got a guy with that kind of athleticism and and uh, and agility, yeah, let him, let, him, let him hunt, you know, let him go after it. Uh, and in the pass game, I think he's, because of that athleticism, I think you see him uh, show some good ability in man-to-man coverage uh, because he has that agility and has that, uh, that ability to kind of stay and move with guys. Uh, zone is a little bit of a different story. Uh, I think uh, Kim McCusick, who also writes for, for Russell Street Report, has mentioned several times that he still kind of is a little bit confused in zone in terms of what's going on behind him. Uh, it takes time, obviously, to, to develop that level of awareness because uh, you know, offenses are going to want you to take the cheese. They're going to show you a shallow route underneath, then, you know, run something in behind you and hope that you bite up on that shallow route. Uh, we see the Steelers do it all the time. So it takes time to develop that level of awareness. Uh, but I'm encouraged that Kenny Young can get there because he seems like an intelligent guy. Seems like he's really grasped uh, the playbook pretty quickly this year. Just I'm basing that just on, you know, the snaps that he's been given. I don't know if he'd be in there as much as he is if they felt he was struggling with the playbook. So uh, really encouraging sign, and yeah, future looks bright. Future definitely looks bright. Speaking of the future, the Ravens are now five and five. They are, if the uh, playoffs were to start today, the sixth seed in the playoffs in the AFC. Talk about schematically what the Ravens might do offensively with Lamar Jackson against the Raiders coming up, and how they can advance to six and five. I think we see more of the same. You know, I really do. I think you're going to continue to see the bump that he gives the running game because. It's, you know, it's really a numbers deal in there, right, in terms of the run game. And he adds an extra guy, an extra number that you have to account for, right? He, he often is going to be, um, you know, the, the sixth or seventh or even eighth guy in terms of run game numbers. And typically you don't have to account for the QB in the run game, right? So now you have to dedicate uh, a resource, uh, a gap, you know, to him. And that can open up things not only for him, as we saw, but for a guy like Gus Edwards or any other running back that they put back there. So I think we see more of that in the run game. I think in the pass game, um, and this kind of piggybacks off the run game a little bit, obviously defenses are going to adjust. Defenses are probably going to want to stack the box, right? There's probably, they're probably going to want to drop a safety down there and, and force him uh, to do something other than hand the ball off to a running back or keep it on his own read. Then that's where I think the play-action game really, really can be um, – something effective for them, especially the play action boot game. This guy, I mean, to me, he seems like a guy who would have been perfect for that Kubiak style offense, right? The the stretch zone and then the boot action all, you know, out the opposite way, get him on the edge with the the option to run or pass, give him sort of a half field read, take some deep shots down the field. I think, you know, bring back some of those concepts. I'm sure they still got them hanging around somewhere, kind of dust those off and uh and get those back in. They they showed a couple of them in the in the game yesterday. Uh, but I they think did. Was, they were effectively with Nick Boyle. They hit them for like a 16-yard gain. Yeah, yeah. So I think that stuff can be really effective when teams decide that they want to load the box and try to take away the run. So uh, I, I'd expect that we'd see more of that and then probably some downfield shots too. I don't think we really got a chance to see that yesterday. Uh, it's hard to judge without the coach's film whether they actually had those kind of routes called and, and maybe they were just taken away by coverage or, or, or what have you. But um, expect that we'd probably see a little bit more of that too, because eventually you got to, right? Because guys will just continue to sit on routes, right? If everything is underneath right. and condense the field, and then it gets really tough uh, to find open guys. 
We're speaking with Mike Crawford from Russell Street Report. He handles Game Changers for Russell Street Report. So what's coming up on Game Changers this week, Mike? Well, it would be hard not to talk about Lamar Jackson. Uh, oh, yeah, you can that cer- guy. You, you can certainly talk about Gus Edwards. Probably not as sexy for a lot of people, but, I mean, the guy had an awesome game. Uh, defense made some plays. But, yeah, I think I'm going to focus on Lamar, but probably – a little bit different element than what people may expect. Uh, I'm a little bit more interested in looking at how he played from the pocket and in his limited passing opportunities, you know, what he looked like in those situations. Obviously we saw what he could do with the ball in his hands as a runner. Everybody can, you know, you don't need me to, to really add any analysis to that, but I think he showed some nice things in the pocket in terms of poise and working through progressions that maybe didn't show up on the broadcast copy that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I can maybe uncover for folks a little bit when the coach's film comes out. There he is, Mike Crawford from Russell Street Report. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Appreciate it. Our pleasure. All right, we're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to wrap it up here on the Russell Street Report. Don't go away. Like 33rd Street was to Colt fans, Russell Street will become legendary for future generations of Raven fans. Not only is Russell Street the team's address on Sunday, it's now home to the website voted Baltimore's best five years in a row. You've known them as Ravens247.com for years, and now you'll love them as RussellStreetReport.com for many more. There's nothing else like it for Baltimore football fans. Trust me, RussellStreetReport.com, Baltimore's home for football 24-7. And welcome back to the Russell Street Report. I'm Tony Lombardi. Each week here in Russell Street Report, we want to feature a fan rant, their feelings and thoughts following a Ravens win or loss. This week, Jim Hayes from Fullerton chimes in on his thoughts about the Ravens' 24-21 win over the Cincinnati Bengals. So after a much-needed bye week, the Ravens, we recharge, re-energize, hit the reset button, and got ourselves a W against Cincinnati. A much-needed win against our divisional opponent at home and to keep us in the playoff hunt. And just like the Dumb and Dumber movie quote, you're telling me there's a chance, and we got that chance. So we're back in the hunt, and Lamar got his first win. Awesome. So I don't know who's starting this week against the Raiders, but let's try to get that easy W at home. So whether it's Joe recovering from energy or Lamar getting another win, whatever's best for the team is best for the fans. So I say let's do what we got to do. Bring the heat. Go Ravens! Thanks for joining us today on the Russell Street Report here on Fanimal Radio. Special thanks to Jeff Zeribak from The Athletic and Michael Crawford from Russell Street Report. Be sure to check out their excellent work at The Athletic and Russell Street Report, respectively. Also, be sure to check out our other programs here on Fanimal Radio, such as the Armchair Quarterback featuring Drew Forrester, Dean Johnson, and yours truly, the Ravens Rap, aired live at the Green Turtle in Ocean City, Maryland, and also the Music Fanimal. This week's special guest on the Music Fanimal is Vertigo Red. Just go to FanimalRadio.com for more information. Like us on Facebook, at The Fanimal, as well as on Twitter, at The Fanimal. Until next week, my parting shot in Word on the Street. I'm Tony Lombardi with the Word on the Street, brought to you by Royal Farms. The Ravens beat the Bengals at M&T Bank Stadium on Sunday by the score of 24-21. It was a game that featured some exciting play by rookie quarterback Lamar Jackson. Time will tell if it was the beginning of a new era of football here in Baltimore or if it was a temporary diversion until Joe Flacco's return to the lineup. Most expect him to be back for the start against the Falcons down in Atlanta's new Mercedes-Benz Stadium where Super Bowl 53 will be played. But lost in the excitement of Sunday's game were 15,000 fans, 15,000 empty seats in what was essentially a do-or-die game for the Ravens. What has happened to the energy that was once a given at the bank? What has happened to the 12th man that was once among the best in the NFL? Many things have changed 
It's a confluence of issues that keeps fans away, and those issues represent steep challenges for the Ravens marketing group when they begin preparations for the 2019 season. Give the Ravens credit for doing all they can to make the game day experience better. They've added some fantastic scoreboards, they've added escalators with more to come, but for some reason, it's not enough. During an offseason that will undoubtedly usher in significant change for the team, it might be time to consider more changes to the game day experience. The band, while nostalgic and a great reminder of days gone by, is obsolete. They add nothing to the energy level in the stadium, particularly for the growing number of millennials at the games. The music, it's all over the place and does little to stir up the crowd the way it once did. The video boards, they are magnificent, but clearly underutilized. It's like giving the keys to a Maserati to a kid who just got his learner's permit. And the PA guy, did you know that Kyle Bowler kicked the field goal for the Ravens in Sunday's game? Just ask PA guy Bruce Cunningham. Change is inevitable for all teams in the NFL. Sometimes it should extend to those responsible for entertainment at the stadium. And now is that time for the Ravens. I'm Tony Lombardi.